This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Elijah, welcome to the show. Honored to have you on. The more I learned about you this morning, I'm interested in, in your story. I know there's many that are, are going to learn a lot from you today, but you bring from what I learned, you, you bring you bring a lot of knowledge in the cash flow modeling, but also something that you and I talked about a little bit was a fun fact. Actually, my team highlighted, and then you even mentioned it, that you all travel full time, but you still operate, you know, a great business while being able to travel like that. And so I, I'm looking forward to hearing some of those hacks. We like to travel as well, but maybe not as much as you do. But we, I still love hearing things like that, how we, and I, th I think we can learn a lot, probably even if we don't travel about how to be as efficient as possible, because <laughs> yeah, that's probably something you've had to do a lot and focus on. So I want to dive in there in a moment or into a few things, but also, man, who's Elijah? Give the listeners a little more about your background and let's, let's dive into real estate and financial mo modeling and some of those things. Whitney, thank you so much for having me on the show. I actually saw you at the best ever conference. I don't think we had a chance to really have a conversation, but I, I'm definitely grateful to be invited on to speak with you and your and your audience. So really thank you for that. I got started in real estate about seven years ago, just in the single family world. I was still in college and I convinced my best friend and my cousin to go in with me on a single family house. We put a tenant in and we, we loved that process despite its many setbacks and hurdles that we had to overcome. And we did that uh, four more times before then jumping into a small multifamily building. And then I got, ended up getting a job at a real estate fund right out of college. And through what I learned at that, at that company, as well as partnering with some of my coworkers, we were able to go after some smaller and mid-sized multifamily buildings while I was there. I then discovered the concept of partnering and co-GP and essentially working with much larger companies to take down bigger deals together by focusing on what I was good at and the skills that I could bring to their deals. And so through those opportunities, I was able to scale my portfolio and my GP position significantly to now where I have almost an interest in almost a thousand units of multifamily and then also about 100 Airbnbs as well. And since then, as you mentioned, I, my girlfriend and I, we bought a Mercedes Sprinter van and we renovated it over a two-year period. And now we are traveling full-time. And as you can imagine, my business model had to change quite a bit. I was no longer able to actively manage operations within the deal. And so my business model has since switched over to more of a fund of funds and investor relations type of role where now I am uh, really focused on working with great sponsors and raising capital for, for their deals. And so that's what I'm up to now and I'm definitely looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, you know, that's awesome. I think it's, it's interesting that you can do all that from the road and a thousand units and the, the hundred Airbnbs. Is that you're all single family portfolio? Uh, what is that? Or is that something you- Those made? are all single family. So I, I actually partnered up with a company called TechVestor and I put together my own pool of capital for investing in that deal with TechVestor. Okay. Okay. So that was still a, say, a fund to fund where you helped raise That's capital. Right. Okay. That's interesting. And in how you have, you're, you're willing to transition to make this work, right? And, and really transition. It sounded like what you were doing. 
what you were focused on in the business. So now though, now that you're doing this, I wanted to highlight that you, and you mentioned that your superpower was, was cash flow modeling, right? And you learned a lot of that from say the corporate world that you were able to bring to multifamily right now. I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a skill that's probably very valuable. <laughs> it was never, Absolutely. it was never a skill that I had before multi multifamily or getting into this kind of business, but it's still probably will never be to the scale or level that somebody like real say you have, I've had to bring those skills on the team. Right. And so we can dive in deeper, but, but I think it's a very valuable skill set. I would love for you to just highlight a couple of things about that skill and how that's helped you. And maybe oh, some sure. things that like, that like myself or the past investor listening could implement to do that better or some things to focus on. And then we'll move on to a few other things. Sure. So at, at the core of it, the whole point of the cash flow modeling is so that you as the investor can understand every single inflow and outflow of the deal. You can't really do this with stocks. They try. I, I was an intern at a hedge fund once trying to, to pick securities to invest in. There are just thousands of variables and you, you can model them out. But with real estate, there's, there's not that many, maybe bet between 20 and 50 variables in your underwriting. And only like 10 of them are, are significant in terms of need, big needle movers. And so I, when I invest in a deal, I want to know when I'm sending my dollars out, like exactly what they're doing, how they're flowing through the property, where they're be, being invested, and then how I'm getting them back and when I'm getting them back and what rates of return and, and the metrics like that. And so the, the only way to really do that and to understand exactly what's happening within the deal is to put it in Excel. You, you figure out what all of your inputs are and you make a best guess. And it's, it's never accurate after the first six months of the deal. Once you underwrite, everything changes, but it is, it is a best guess. It's a plan. It's a way to rationalize investments for other people if you're bringing capital in. But for me, it's, it's how I figure out where to place my capital. If I do an underwriting and a cash flow model and I figure out that I can earn a 15% rate of return on my money, well, I'm not going to go put it in that 8% deal that I saw yesterday. So it's a way for me to figure out where to put my money. And then also it serves as a business plan for that investment as well. Um, and so that those are just the high level things of it. I think anyone who's investing in a deal, especially the, the LPs who really don't have control over, over the properties that they're investing in, I think it's important that they understand at least how the modeling works and they, they get some eyes on a, on a forecast on some type of pro forma for the property. A lot of people are just investing deals, blindly trusting the, the sponsor, the syndicator, when they should really be understanding how the money flows in and out of that deal, because that, that is the taking responsibility for your investing. And it's extremely important. Yeah, no doubt about it. it I, it made me think about even, uh, whether we think about personal finances or, or the business or each property individually from one end of your finances to the other, you have to know where the dollars are going, right? Where they're coming in. Like, I like how simple you made that. It's like the inflow, the outflow. Do you, do you know what's happening ultimately and tracking those things? And, and you said, you know, what, 20 to 50 variables and probably only 10 that are like major needle movers. And so it, I think too, when we can like narrow it down or simplify it more like that, the, the more consistent, more accurate we can be as well, right? And the more times we do it. Absolutely. So no, I, I just wanted you to highlight that because I, I feel like sometimes it can be pretty overwhelming for somebody to come in and think, try to think through the cash modeling, right? The cash flow of a, of a large 
multifamily deal, but it, it doesn't have to be rocket science either. Right. And also for, for those who like have no experience with it, it's not too hard to learn. Go on YouTube. There are a million different tutorials, literally just type in how to build a multifamily underwriting model or something. Watch the two hour video. It's worth the time. If you're going to be investing fifty hundred thousand dollars into something, just do the work. I personally, when I got to my corporate job, my company made me take like a, a three day online course. And that's that's how I learned. But there are a lot of different ways to learn. You should understand the basics of it if you're really investing in anything. Yeah. Well, let's transition a little bit. I know you are operating a fund. You operate fund to funds. And I have a number of questions about that because I get questions about that all the time. We've had a number of people partner with us to have their own fund, right? And they'll come in as a fund to fund and and want to partner on deals that we're doing and whatnot. And, and there's a number of reasons we do it that way, right? Which we can chat about. But but I want to know why why did you go fund to fund? And let's dive in there a little bit. We'll make, we may talk sure. about that from the, let's say the operator's perspective and, and the limited partner perspective as well. But why did you go fund to fund? Yeah. And I do both. I do GP, which is like actually coming into the deal as, as one of the managers. And then I also do fund to funds, which for those who who don't know, it's when I go and create a completely separate LLC away from the deal. And then I use the cash that I raised within that LLC to invest in the deal as a limited partner. And so that I, I do both strategies. So the reason why I went that capital raising route rather than just doing the operations is because simply my lifestyle changed. I had 10 full cycle deals that, that I got out of over the past few years. And that allowed me to execute on this vision of traveling the world in a, in a van full time. And I wasn't able to be around to manage managers and contractors and, and do like, you know, boots on the ground type work. And so I, I needed to figure out what the best bang for the buck was in this, in what I was the best at and what I loved doing. And, and that was making relationships with investors, conducting due diligence on deals and sponsors and you know, underwriting deals. Not so much the asset management portion. I don't really enjoy asset management. And so I made my business focus on just that capital raising. And then that resulted in me just doing really co-GP and fund-of-funds opportunities. Now, I'll explain the reason why I would do fund-of-funds rather than co-GP is because of the legalities of it. So we have a lot of, a lot of syndicators who used to bring in 10, 15, even 20 co-managers into the deal, but those most of those managers were only raising capital in exchange for fees. And the SEC considers that to be broker dealering, which is which is illegal unless you have a proper license and you hang that license at a shop. And so to get around that law, they the syndicators started saying, okay, instead, why don't you create your own fund completely separate, bring me cash as a limited partner, and then I'll cut you a deal on the pref, the preferred return, and the profit split at the end of the deal. So m most most funds are doing, you you get like an 8% preferred return, and then between an 8% and a 15% IRR, you'll get a 70-30 split. And then after that, they'll split it up 50-50. That's just a common waterfall structure that a lot of these syndicators do. Well, well, me as a fund of funds manager, I can raise two to $5 million within a separate LLC approach the sponsor and say, I will take care of a huge problem for you, which is raising $5 million. I'm just going to write you one check for that. However, it's going to come with a string. And that string is, I want to keep 80 or 90% of the profits or whatever we end up negotiating as a separate share class. And so 
I'll rearrange these, I'll, I'll arrange these, these fund of fund deals. But at the end of the day, the people who invest in my fund of funds, as well as myself, because I'm putting my own capital in this first and foremost, um, we're getting a better rate of return at the end of the day than people who are going direct. It's almost like I've put together a, a negotiating club where I, I get all my friends and in, in close investors together. We all pool our capital in one place, and then we use that large check size to negotiate terms with a syndicator. And that has worked out pretty well for us on a few deals. Whether you are a passive investor or whether you're looking to be active, you need to understand what fund to fund means, right? And, and why that may be a good option for you or a guest. Elijah Brown, he, he talked about that yesterday and why he has gone that route. Some things that you need to know, whether you're active or passive, you need to listen to yesterday's show and you're going to learn more about him there today. We're going to dive back into some skills that he has that, again, you need to have on, on your team or personally one way or the other. But we're going to dive back in. Elijah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me back, Whitney. I appreciate it. Yeah, honored to spend some more time with you. I, I promised the listeners yesterday we were going to talk a little bit about your your type of business where you're on the road and able to be so efficient. And and I was telling you, it's like, I mean, when you're made to do something like that, you just you go find ways to do things that typically you wouldn't, right? And we all think we're out of time. We don't have enough time and, until some of that time is taken away or there's some things, right? You figure out a different way to do things. We're going to get to that. Uh, but before we do, I, I want to know some of your, I want to dive in on some of your techniques right now around raising capital. I get questions about this all the time, and, sure. and especially in our current climate, right? Everybody I talk to, you know, about raising money, even very, very large operators, man, it's harder right now to raise than it has been in a long time. And there's more money sitting on the sidelines, right? Or trillions of dollars. That's more than's ever been there, right? They're just sitting there waiting. And so, Man, Elijah, let's jump into some of your techniques on raising capital right now. I know you mentioned sure. yesterday you have some kind of email marketing system or whatnot, but let's dive into a few of those things. Yeah, happy, happy to, definitely happy to go over that. And just just so that everybody who's listening knows, right now I'm approaching about that 20 million mark in terms of equity that I have raised. And so I'm going to go over like how I got there in the beginning and then some of the strategies I'm using now in this completely different business strategy and market that I'm that I'm in. And so for the first five, five and a half years, it was mostly friends, family and coworkers, especially in those first few deals, the single families. I was approaching my, my my best friend and my cousin and a few really close friends just trying to like put a club together for buying properties this little pool of friends. And it wasn't even really taking fees. I was just trying to get in on these deals and I didn't have enough cash. And so I invited these other people in to invest alongside me. And that's kind of how I built my early track record. Once I got a job and started meeting coworkers and other people who were earning high amounts of money, um, I started approaching them. And so it that's the natural progression. You go from like friends and family to coworkers and people that, you know, you just know or have an, some type of interaction with. And so for the first five and a half years, I really raised money from those people, close, close connections. And at some point in every uh, capital raiser's career, you, you run out of, you run out of money, you exhaust those networks. And so you have to go toward a retail or an institutional route. And when you don't have a huge track record, you got to start with the retail because very few institutions are going to come out and trust you with that much money right away. 
And so the, the best way to do that is by establishing some type of presence through thought leadership that's going on podcasts like I'm doing right now and also posting on social media. So I run a LinkedIn strategy where I'll post some type of educational content three times a week and then sometimes more. And the engagement from those posts really funnels potential investor leads into my email marketing software where I can then nurture them, educate them on what I do, and then eventually pitch them deals. And some of those deals I can send to everyone because they're allowed to be mass advertised. Those are the 506 Cs. And then some deals I can only send to people that I have a relationship with via either a video call, a phone call, or some type of pre-existing relationship. Those are the 506 B deals. And so we, we run both types of strategies, but the whole goal is right now going after a specific avatar of retail investors, someone who earns enough to be able to invest $50,000 into a deal, and then essentially nurturing that relationship with those people to try to grow the list. And just in, in complete full transparency, I, I only have about, I have about 400 contacts in my email list right now. So that's okay. where I'm at. That's awesome. Uh, well, having any kind of strategy is, is more than what most people do. <laughs> and so, but I love to thought through a podcast, a LinkedIn strategy, even something as, as a cadence as three posts a week. Let's dive into a couple of those things. Sure. And because I, I've, I've heard and I have not taken advantage of this like I should have. And, and, uh, but LinkedIn, right? I mean, I hear so many people talk about raising money on LinkedIn and Twitter and some different platforms, but it's almost like if you can just focus on one of those, like you can really go places, right? And so it sounds like your, your path was LinkedIn. You said three posts a week. Speak to maybe the creation process and break that down a little bit for somebody that says, oh, wait a minute, Elijah, like I just, sure. I can't come up with that much content. I don't, I don't have that much to say because I hear that all the time too, right? I don't have three things I could post a week. How do you come up with that? And, and then just follow up every day or do you every day or on LinkedIn and that, what's that look like? It's difficult if you don't have a story and some type of track record. Luckily, I was going into this whole LinkedIn thing, having had a lot of deal experience, um, both good and bad, as well as a story to go with it in terms of me being a, a young guy to building this portfolio out of right out of college. And so I actually, uh, when I got started, I, and I, I only started posting regularly at the beginning of this year in 2023. And I started with an approach of let's try all the different types of media that they offer. So articles, I was writing long form articles. I was doing the short form posts. I was putting up videos. I was doing carousels, all different kinds. And then every 30 days, I keep track of all of my metrics in a spreadsheet. And so I, I, I'm very like granular about it. And I see which posts generated the most impressions and engagement. And which posts didn't? Why did the ones that did, why did they work? What components of those posts uh, did people relate with and want to actually see? And then for the ones that didn't, like, what should I stop doing? And so I have this long running list of like things that I should keep doing and things that I should not do. And it's funny because the conclusion of that was that I should stop doing articles. I should stop doing videos. I should stop doing carousels and only do the, the regular posts with a few emojis with like five or six lines of text and, and a really good hook in the beginning. 
And then specifically the type of content that I try to focus on is specific dollar amounts that I've won or lost. And people really love it when I talk about money that I lost doing deals. It's like people want to know, like they feed off of the fear and the disparity or whatever it is. I lost $15,000 in due diligence fees from this deal. Here's how I overcame it. And people want to know, like, how did I get around that roadblock to continue with my business? And so that's super important. The other thing is case studies from deals that I've done. So photos and explanations. How did I raise rents a thousand percent at this apartment complex in Phoenix, Arizona? People want to know because they're interested in doing it themselves. And so really those categories, those two, but then also talking of being a van life nomadic entrepreneur, people like that as well. So I've kind of niched down and figured out what, what I can post to relate with people, the form of that media. And that is, and and now I schedule my posts a month in advance where I'll, I'll, I'll use a software to just like write all the posts and schedule it over and over and over again. And I'll spend one day a month doing my posts. That's awesome. Right there. One day a month doing scheduling a month at a time. So smart. Uh, What software do you use for scheduling? I use Publer, P-U-B-L-R. I've heard of a few others. I think there's one called Taplio maybe, and there's a whole bunch of them, but this one seems to work for me. And that doesn't get me out of the responsibility of responding to comments and posting on other people's stuff because that's how you that's how you get uh, your post distributed to more people. You got to have early engagement and then it gets sent out to thousands of people. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. And and, and yeah, that I just I want to I love like breaking down the sure. what's the word? <laughs> it seems so complicated, right? Like if you're first thinking about that or kind of some fear, right, of stepping out there and making that happen. I love how you're just like, I love how you're analyzing it as well. Like you're looking at the metrics and tracking it to enough to say, okay, I just need to forget these other three things and just do this. Right. And, and you just really simplified. I wrote an article. <laughs> it was like a, a fictitious story of what would I do as an apartment investor during a zombie apocalypse? And I wrote, I wrote a whole what if, and I was like so excited about it. I was like, this is so cool. People are going to love reading about this. And it, it flopped. It got like 300 views. And I decided never again to do something random and off topic and, and stop it with the articles. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. So I, I, one question there on the metrics, sure. is that something you're pulling from LinkedIn? Is that something you're physically having to go in and, and look and, and document LinkedIn and provides how do you it. gather? LinkedIn, LinkedIn provides. provides metrics. They they show you what your top performing posts are on any look back period that you want. You can download your data and do an Excel spreadsheet from LinkedIn as well. So that's important to do to track your metrics. Yeah. No, I just, yeah, love that. It's, it's not extremely time consuming, right? And so, all right. And then, so they come out of, let's say LinkedIn, right? They connect with yeah. you there. A lead does, potential investor. Right. That they can maybe what, that you send them to your website or, or how, what happens then? Are you schedule, you message them, schedule a call? I have a few different, um, we call these calls to action within my posts. Uh, so at the end of every single post, I have a link to something. It's either to download my ebook, my free book, download my free underwriting model, plus my video tutorial that goes along with it. Or the one that I use the most, which, which I prefer the most, is just like a link to sign up for my my email list which is essentially like do you want access to see my deals do you want more real estate educational content if so just give me your email address and it's they click the link they get taken to a form they just fill it out um, it asks if they're an accredited investor it asks a few other questions to just help me with my uh my, my tagging and my databasing and everything like that 
And, uh, and then they get input into my active campaign email marketing software where they then get automatically sent educational emails. They get sent deals. They get sent requests to meet with us and stuff like that. Essentially, the whole point there is to nurture the relationship so that maybe they watch three or four deals go by and they, they see the emails coming through. And then one day they get an inheritance for half a million dollars and they're like, I, I need to figure out how to invest this. Uh, and they see my email come through with a new deal and they're like, oh my God, this is great. I've been watching this guy for years. I know exactly what, what he does and his track record, the types of renovation projects that he does. I'm going to invest. And so that's the whole point of that. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.